Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 26. I'll actually begin in the middle of verse 18. Hear now God's holy and infallible and inerrant word. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that would be far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And here's one of those changes in our liturgy. Here, if you look in your bulletins, dear church, what do, this is God's word, and what do we know about God's word? It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Indeed it is. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word, and we come to you as expectant children, uh, eagerly desiring to hear your voice. Would you speak to us this morning, and would you tell us of the glories of your Son, Jesus Christ? We pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, that is all very good news. The Philippian church must have thought, as they heard Paul's report on his circumstances, the advancement of the gospel in the midst of his Paul's imprisonment, how the gospel was advancing in such a way that it had become known to the entire imperial guard and all the others that his that he was in chains for Christ, and also that it, it, there was great joy in seeing that the the brothers, most of the brothers, were become far much more bold in speaking the word of Christ. That was great news, they thought. But but what of what of what comes next? What of this impending trial? Paul was in chains. He was chained to a soldier, waiting to stand trial before Caesar. What did Paul have to think about that? Was he anxious about what he would say before perhaps Emperor Nero, this Caesar who hated the Christians? Was he concerned, was Paul concerned about, would this be a sudden end to his gospel ministry? Would it all be for naught at the hands of this Roman emperor. And just like before, Paul responded with great joy, not in fear or anxiety, but in joy. He said, yes, and I will rejoice. I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And brothers and sisters, God sometimes surprises us, often surprises us actually, not because we should be surprised, but because we are slow to listen to 
what he says about himself, who he is, what he will do. And we're even slower to believe it. We swim in a sea of unbelief. And God acts. And it's surprising. We tend to think that our lives beat at the drum of the world according to the world's cadence, playing the world's song. But every now and then, in the midst of the dis and the din of that dirge, the sweet melody of God's grace shines forth, or the the triumphant um, fanfare of his glory sounds forth. And we're reminded that God is still there, and he's still at work, and that even the raucous noise of the world is part of his grand and glorious symphony. And yet we forget. We forget because we haven't learned the beautiful melody of God's grace, of of these themes of God's song. We haven't planted them deep in our hearts. We we lack, and it results in a lack of hopeful optimism and bold faithfulness as we move forward into the future. Beloved, Jesus Christ is the melody of God's grace. He is the beautiful song that our God sings on page after page of God's word. And Paul's solution to our fearful hearts and our lack of joy is for us to be swept away into this beautiful love song of Jesus Christ. True joy, brothers and sisters, is found in centering our lives, our hearts, on the person of Jesus Christ in life and in death. Do this, and you will never be ashamed. Do this, you will never fail. Do this, and you will find the joy that you seek. Now, Paul is writing this while in chains, and what awaits him is literally a matter of life and death. Caesar will decide Paul's fate along the lines of life or death. If he chooses life, Paul will undoubtedly be released and be able to carry on his gospel ministry. But if Caesar chooses death, this will probably be a quick execution, perhaps by beheading. And yet, in the midst of that, waiting to see the outcomes, Paul has joy. He has hopeful optimism. And that's where he begins with hopeful optimism. He turns from there to a thoughtful deliberation in his own mind, and he ends with a sacrificial conclusion as he weighs these potential outcomes. But he begins with this hopeful optimism that he will be vindicated, that the gospel of Jesus Christ will be vindicated. He says, verse 19, that he knows that through their prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, Paul was in prison. He had been in prison for some time or in in chains. 
No doubt the Philippian church was praying that God would release him from these chains. And that is a good thing to pray for because God had shown that he would do that multiple times. He did that for Paul in Philippi. Uh, When they were in the Philippian jail, the, the ground shook and the doors were opened. Peter also experienced a similar thing where the people were praying and, and God released Peter from the chains. And the spirit of our God releases us from true chains, not simply earthly chains, but the true chains of the power of sin. He breaks those bonds for us. So it's perhaps the Philippians were praying for such a thing, but that's not what Paul was focused on. He wasn't looking for a deliverance, a freedom from his prison or his chains. He is focused on the vindication of his gospel ministry and the vindication of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul actually applies the words of the man Job to his present circumstances. Job, the Old Testament character of Job, was a man that God said was blameless and upright. And yet Job faced very difficult trials. And in many ways, the story of Job is a story of perseverance in the midst of trials. But it's much more than that. It's actually a a story about the vindication of God's workmanship in his people. Apostle Paul will say in Ephesians, he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And that's what was going on in the book of Job. Satan came before the Lord and he said, and and the Lord said, have you considered my servant Job? He is blameless and upright. And, And Satan said, No, 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 no. Your workmanship isn't solid. He only fears you because you have blessed him, because you protect him. Take that away. He will curse you to your face. Your workmanship isn't solid. And the Lord said, all right, take it away. Afflict him, but preserve his life. That's the one thing. In the midst of all that, Job stood firm and God was vindicated. His workmanship was vindicated. And in Job chapter 13, in the midst of the suffering, Job said, Though he, though the Lord slay me, yet I will trust in him. This will be my salvation. That's what Paul says here in verse 19. He says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, this will be my deliverance, my salvation. It's the same thing. Christ will be vindicated. God's work will be vindicated in me. He will be honored and glorified through me. And as he stood in before, as he expected to stand before Caesar, he would not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, he would proclaim Christ with boldness. And this would come because of the people's prayers and what should probably be translated the supply of the Spirit, a unique supply of God's Spirit for the occasion that Paul was going to be facing. Now, this is, this is something that, a work of the Spirit that is often misunderstood by God's people. We, 
we don't understand the spirit in the same way that we do the others, it is a, a true fact that in Christ Jesus, every one of God's people has been given the spirit of Jesus Christ to dwell within us. It is through the spirit that we have faith. It is through spirit, the spirit that we walk. It is through the spirit that we are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. But it is also a true fact, an equally true fact, that at times of God's choosing, he reveals that he gives a unique supply of his spirit for the purposes of ordinarily of proclaiming the gospel with boldness, for defending and confirming the gospel. In Acts chapter 4, Peter was told, or we were told that Peter was filled with the Spirit. This was a man who had been present at Pentecost and had received the Spirit, but now he is filled with the Spirit in a new way to proclaim the glories of Christ. Later in chapter 4, the whole church is praying for boldness and it says that they were filled with the Spirit. Stephen, in chapter 7 of Acts, says that he was filled with the Spirit and he was able to see the Lord standing in the heavenly realms even as he proclaimed Christ. And the Apostle Paul is told to be filled with the Spirit. And that is that supply of the Spirit that as Paul was being called to stand before Caesar and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ, he expected that he would have that supply as he needed it. Jesus had said, do not fear what you will say when you stand in front of those authorities, for at that time I will teach you, I will give you the words that you need to say. And that is exactly what Paul was expecting. And beloved, what we, we need to know is that God's, God still works that way. It works that way through the, the proclamation of the gospel. And Ephesians chapter 6, Paul exhorted the Ephesian church. He said, he said, pray also for me that words may be given to me in, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am in chains that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And beloved, it's an exhortation to all of us that we must pray for our gospel preachers. If you desire to have more blessing, more benefit for yourself, for your family, for your spouse, from the preaching ministry of Zion Presbyterian Church, then pray for me and for every man that occupies this pulpit that words may be given to me to declare the mystery of Christ with boldness. If you desire to see the gospel come forward from this place to go out into our community, be a blessing to the community, to see sinners become saints who bow the knee to Christ. Pray for the preaching ministry of Zion Presbyterian Church because God desires to honor his son. He desires to build his kingdom, which he does primarily through the preaching of the word. So God answers those prayers and yes, and amen. So please, pray. And Paul's not really concerned with the Spirit giving him winning legal arguments so that when he stands trial, he will be released. His focus is the glory of Christ. He says, whether that I'll have full courage so that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And beloved, isn't it true that when we are in 
times of affliction, times of trials, our natural impulse is to cry out to the Lord, Lord, take it away. Take away the pain. Put me back the way that it was. Restore the circumstances. Beloved, our hope can't be in pleasant pastures. Because on this side of glory, even the greenest pastures are infected with disease and infested with bugs. Our hope has to be in Christ. And our heart impulse ought to be to honor him in our lives, whether in life or in death. And so with that in the view, then the Apostle Paul begins this thoughtful deliberation. He, he considers the, the potential outcomes of his life. And he starts weighing them like as he's considering which one is better. And before we look at that, think of how remarkable that is. Here's the Apostle Paul in chains awaiting trial. And he's speaking as though it's his choice. He's trying to decide which one he thinks is better. As if he has some say on the matter. It's not Caesar who's actually deciding it. And he doesn't, he doesn't wrestle through these options as though he is sure hoping that he gets the lesser of two evils. Is he? He's, he's contemplating it almost like the Lord has placed before him two glorious gifts. And he's trying to choose which of, is the better of the two. Because on the one hand, he says, I could have life. He says, for me... To live is Christ. If I live, I already have the sweetness of knowing Christ and being able to walk in him. I have fellowship with him. I have fruitful labor, he says. That, that remains fruitful labor. There's something beautiful in that, beloved. To know that your labor is fruitful. To see the fruit. And he had seen wonderful fruit from his ministry. And he has true joy from this idea of remaining in Christ, living, serving for Christ's glory. But then on the other hand, he's got death, which he says it's far better. <laughs> to die is gain. It's, it's far better. And that gain, we can't, we shouldn't think of that gain as though he's saying, well, of course that's far better because then I'm done. I'm done suffering for the sake of the gospel. This is, this is a man who was stoned to death, or not to death, but near death. He was beaten multiple times. He was shipwrecked. He was bit by snakes. And, and, and now he's in prison and he's still rejoicing for, the, for all the work that the Lord has done through him. It's Freedom from his earthly affliction just isn't in his mind. That's not his concern. He says, if I, if I die, I will be with him. I will have the goal of my heart, my treasure, the aim of my ministry, the one that my heart loves that I've been proclaiming throughout my ministry. I will be with Christ, Jesus, my Savior. I will see 
his tender gaze directly. I will feel his warm embrace. I will hear his loving words speak to me. It would be far better. Far better. Beloved, that, that is the secret to true joy. To have Christ as your treasure. Is Christ your treasure? Do you look at every circumstance of your life and say, I've got two good options. Either Christ will be honored and glorified in my body, or far better, I will be with him and get my heart's joy forever and ever. And beloved, he is, Paul is, he's torn between those two options, isn't he? He says, I'm, I'm hard-pressed between the two. Which one, I, I, I cannot tell. He says, my desire, my, my heart's desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's what I want. That's the better option. But it's more necessary, he says, that I remain for your sake. It's more necessary on your account. And given that, he, Paul does his gospel logic and he comes to a sacrificial conclusion. He, he traces the themes that God has painted in his life and he's reminded of everything that he's endured about how the Lord had said, Paul, I will show you how much you must suffer for the sake of the gospel. Paul, I will teach you that you must deny yourself again and again and again. And Paul thinks of these things and he considers the two options and he says, I know what the outcome will be. He says, convinced of this, verse 25, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He says, I know that I will be called upon yet one more time to deny myself my true heart's desire out of love for you and out of service to you. And that gives him confidence that he will remain with them for their progress and joy in the faith. The one who had seen the advancement of the gospel through his imprisonment now looks forward to the advancement and the joy of their own faith by his remaining with them. And beloved, if you want to know the true, a portrait of, of a, the, the true heart of a, a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's it. Because that is the heart of our Savior Jesus Christ. One who denied himself for our sake. He denied himself and made himself nothing for us. He denied himself the glories of heaven, to take on human flesh and weakness. He denied himself honor and praise 
to endure shame. He denied himself life so that he would be crucified for us. He did that for us, choosing to endure all these things for us. And in Christ Jesus, beloved, that is the heart that the Spirit of Christ works in his people, that we would deny even our greatest heart desire to be with Christ for the sake of one another. But notice below that it was of a different sort than Jesus's. Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross by giving up his life for us. But in him, we don't give up our lives. We sacrifice eternity. We are living sacrifices as we read from chapter 12. Paul is choosing to remain alive rather than to be put to death so that he might serve us. And beloved, that is the heart of a disciple of Christ as we honor Christ in our bodies. On January 22, 1984, President Ronald Reagan issued a proclamation that the third Sunday of each January would be uh, set apart as the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. We talked about this in Sunday School today, because uh, today is that, that day this year. And beloved, it is a good thing for us to be reminded to pray for those children who are, have not yet been born for their protection and for their life. It's good for us to be reminded to pray for those mothers who are struggling with the difficult choice of an unexpected and unplanned pregnancy. It is good for us to pray for the end of sexual violence and sexual immorality. It's good for us to be reminded to pray for those who are in despair of their lives. It's good for us to pray that we respect all life, not just the young, but also the elderly and the terminally ill, that all life is sacred because we are created in God's image. And it's good for us to consider ways to practically put that care and concern into practice. But beloved, this passage shows us what it means to truly keep life sacred, how you can keep your life sacred by living for Christ. To live is Christ. But it's not just living for Christ, and it's not really just dying for gain. There's, there's something behind that, isn't there? That Jesus Christ can't be, and our faith can't just be this bolt-on thing to our lives, something on, on the peripheral. Jesus Christ has to be our center, our, our joy, our true joy. We need to know him because knowing Christ is to love him. Because if we know him, then we know of his love for us. We know of his tenderness and his gentleness and his power and his might. 
his holiness and yet also his grace and his mercy and his patience. And knowing these things, he becomes our treasure. And as Jesus told us where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. And if our heart is there, then from that will flow this cry that we would live for Christ and see death an even greater gain. Because, beloved, we live for our treasure. There was an inscription that was found in Carthage that was perhaps done by a Roman soldier that uh, kind of had his life mantra. It said, to laugh, to hunt, to bathe, and to game. That is life. So basically, to hunt, to party, and to relax. That's life. What would be your mantra? What would you say is to live is this? Is it to, to, to work and to have fruitful labor, that's, that's life. Is it to have an intriguing intellectual discussion with good friends? That's that's life. Is it a, a joyful family celebration? Or is it no obligations, no deadlines, just peace and quiet? That is life. Because, beloved, we, we look for joy. We're, we're looking for the good life as we define it. Because we think where that is, that's where we're going to find joy. And Paul does something actually pretty, pretty marvelous in this passage, in that, in that famous verse. There was a Greek cliche, zane krestos, zane krestos, which meant life is good. Life is good. That's what we want. Life is good. And Paul turns, takes that and turns it on its head. Instead of saying zane krestos, he says zane Christos. Life is Christ. Life is Christ. He's saying, Jesus Christ is the good life, beloved. He is the source of true joy. And we can't get tripped up when he says in verse 20, he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's not, he's not dividing himself from us or making himself into this super apostle, or this super, super holy man. He's learned the source of joy is. He's learned how to be bold for the sake of the gospel. He's, he's learned, he tells us later, that he's learned the secret of contentment. And he's trying to share that with us. And it's not, the secret is not to live as Christ, and, and it's not even to die as gain. The secret is Christ himself. Grabbing hold of Christ as the center, he is the true source of joy. He is the true source of our boldness and the true source of our contentment. And if we have Christ at our, the core of our soul, if he is our treasure, then we can't help but say to live is Christ and to die is much better. And beloved, I'd assume that probably most of us here have not oriented our lives and our hearts 
in such a way that we can say that Christ is the, the core of our very lives. The question I ask you is, do you want that? I know I want that because I'm convinced that there's no other place that I will find true joy or true meaning for my life because in Christ is our meaning. And so if the Spirit is stirring your heart and you, you long for that, I think the Spirit also teaches us how we how we receive that, how we obtain that. And God's word is where we start. His word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. He tells us how we can do that. And I would say three simple things. The first is, if Christ is going to be the center of your heart, you must receive him. You cannot have him at your center if you have not received him by faith. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your treasure, God offers him to you freely without cost for your blessing and your benefit out of his supreme and eternal love for you. Receive him by faith. Make him your treasure. Secondly, if he's yours, pursue after him. A treasure's worth pursuing with all of your might. We, we speak of the ordinary means of grace. God gives us ways to get more of him through his word where he speaks to us, through the sacraments where he nourishes us and he confirms and he seals these things to us, through prayer where we get to speak to him. God draws us near to himself. He, he, he allows us to enjoy him more with each one of those things. And then finally, I would say, don't wait until you have enough joy or enough boldness. Because if you wait until you're fully joyful or bold, you will not do anything. God works as us, as we work in him. With whatever boldness, with whatever joy that you have, serve with all of your might. Pursue him with all of your heart. And in that, he will cultivate a deeper and more profound love for you, a more sacrificial um, heart. He will fit you for glory. And beloved, that is how we honor and value the lives that the Lord has given to us is to find ourselves in him. Pastor uh, Kent Hughes, a former pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, told a story about a gentleman in his church by the name of Andrew Chong. Andrew was a beloved physician and a former elder of his church. And Andrew had some medical condition where he had a stent, and he needed to go in for a procedure to have the stent cleared of blockage. And as when he went in for the procedure, the surgeon had to stop the, the procedure midway because there was just too much blood and uh, the doctor told his wife, Andrew's wife, you need, you need to get your family here because he's, he might not make it through the night. And so she rushed to get the kids, and they rushed to his bedside, and with tears they were uh, saying their goodbyes. And Andrew had just come out of anesthesia, so he was in a lot of pain. He couldn't speak. 
Um, but as he saw their faces, he had a curious expression on his face, and he kind of made a gesture with his finger, and they knew that he was asking for a pen. And so they gave him a pen, and you know, up until this point, he had, for whatever reason, not been able to really even draw a straight line, but he very slowly and carefully wrote 12 words in a, in a single column. He said, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And then at the bottom he wrote, hallelujah. And then he spoke and he said, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Beloved, what is the treasure of your heart? What are you living for? Make Christ the treasure of your heart and he will give you the desires that you seek, the joy in this life, and even far more for all eternity in his presence. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your grace. We cannot do what we just spoke of apart from your spirit. We can't make Christ our own apart from your work, but we thank you that you do work in us. Oh, we, we, we want Christ to be ours. Help us to grab hold of him. Help us to rejoice in him. Help us to make his name glorious through our lives. We pray these things for your glory's sake. Amen.